The question of the day, where is your faith? I invite you to open your copy of God's word to two places. To Luke chapter 8, verse 22. And to Luke 7, verse 17. Put a Bible ribbon or a, a piece of the bulletin in the chapter 7 portion because we're going to start in chapter 8. Luke 8, 22. By the way, there are some notes in your bulletin, some fill in the blanks. That is going to happen at the end, okay? And uh, we'll make it plain when we get to that point so you can have the major takeaways. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're going to start in just a moment. But before we get to this text, I'd like to give you a little background where this message came from. Ever since my earliest days of preaching, I had been taught by mentors to keep a firewall between my personal devotion and my sermon preparation. I can't count on my study to present to you to feed my own heart. I need fresh manna from heaven personally not just what comes from preparation for you. And so I have a journal that I've kept for years that just follows a personal devotional set of Bible readings. But every once in a while, something bleeds over. Every once in a while, something from that personal devotion comes out and, and I sense from the Holy Spirit that somewhere God wants to to a wider audience to hear this. And this message started about a year ago and I've never preached it. I, I told Brother Faber that this is fresh bread. You know, I have thousands of sermons that I could bring as a microwave message, okay? <laughs> I could pull them out of the freezer, pop them in the oven for a bit and they'd be good to go. I've spent two weeks on this presentation. It's, it's from a devotional I had personally about a year ago. I came to this familiar story that I imagine you remember well, how Jesus calmed the sea, the disciples were so worried. And I was on our back porch, which faces north, and I was using my laptop, going through my Bible study, had my journal open, and this thunderstorm began to arise in the north right over the college station area where my son and his family of five live. And that storm got serious. And that night, he and his family huddled in their safe room, which was the stairwell they treat as a, as a pantry. They had their, their little preschoolers pretending nothing was wrong at all while this thunderstorm came through. And my heart was broken because I so identified with the disciples. I did not have the faith to pray that God would deliver my family and believe it. Now, I could pray it. I could pray hoping. But I did not have the conviction that God would hear my prayer, answer it, and change the weather. How many times 
as a pastor, have I been at the bedside of someone whose family had just received the news, your loved one is not going to recover. How do you pray that? What balancing act as a pastor do you give of hope for the family, but a recognition of what's about to happen? And I felt discouraged, and I felt small, and I felt frustrated. That's where this message came from. So I'm going to read from the New King James Version, and uh, you can follow along in whatever copy. By the way, whose glasses are these? Pastor, I'm putting them right, I'm handing them to you right now. Okay, there we go. So, uh, we're going to read this text. I'm going to read it aloud. I assume that I read this solo, Pastor, because we're not all on the same version, are we? No. Okay, here we go. Now it happened on a certain day that he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, Luke is the only gospel writer who calls the Sea of Galilee the lake. Um, it's a really big lake. No wonder they call it a sea. But Luke calls it the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying one to another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Pastor Faber, would you please ask a word of blessing? I know your voice is rough, and I apologize. Okay. Lord, thank you for this word. I pray that you would now have it, Lord, come off of that screen, and Lord, let it be in our heart. May we eat it, inwardly digest it, and Lord, may it just be exhibited and come out in who we are in you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. The storm is still. This story is recorded in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. That means it's a really big deal, okay? This is a story that all three of these gospel writers thought was so significant it needed to be recorded. As a matter of fact, if it, in your personal devotions, if you wanted to explore how the other writers uh, recorded this, it's, it's really, really interesting. Jesus directs the disciples to cross. He's the boss, okay? He's the teacher. He's the rabbi. They're the disciples. He says, let's go across the lake, and away they go. And so um, he goes to sleep. 
Now, we have to remember how life was different then than it is now. You know, Faber was talking about working hard in Brownsville, and I'm with him. That's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. But remember that for Jesus and his disciples, anywhere they went, they walked. We only have one record of Jesus ever riding a beast of burden, and that was the triumphant or triumphal entry. They walked everywhere, miles and miles. Most of the time, they slept rough, wrapped in a blanket or maybe just in their cloak on the ground. Life was hard then. But not only that, Jesus is doing work that we can't even hardly imagine. He was performing miracles. And from what I read in the New Testament, he could feel when the virtue of his power left him and accomplished God's will in someone else's life. He is teaching crowds. Preaching is hard work. He is confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is laboring. And in the context of our message this morning, he's done some amazing things. And so he goes to sleep. God's work in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man, is seen in this passage. Only God could have calmed the storm, but only man would have fallen asleep in the boat. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> God understands when you're tired. He knows when you've had a long, hard, difficult day. He knows what that feels like. Jesus falls asleep. And then a windstorm strikes the boat. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and at its widest point about 8 miles wide. It's kind of heart, heart shaped. 13 miles. I drove about 13 miles as the crow flies today from North Navasota to this church. It's a big lake and it's surrounded by hills and oftentimes the wind will stream through those hills and just a squall will pop up on that lake and it can be ferocious. And even the experienced fishermen were scared. The boat's filling with water. Now, okay, let's exercise our arms, okay? How many folks like to go fishing? Can I see your hands? Thanks, I don't like to fish. <laughs> now, I love to swim, but I'm not a fisherman. You know, if they called it catching, I'd be all for it. <laughs> but it's not called catching. So have you been in a boat, maybe a little John boat, on a lake when a squall came up and you had to head to shore? And those white cats, they start at the front of the boat and they just curl all the way back to the back of the boat. It's not just a splash, it's this arc of water, and it's really scary. There are at least four experienced professional fishermen in this boat 
who have been cutting bait for their dad since they were old enough to be off their mother's apron springs. They know this lake. They know this water. And they are scared because they're in jeopardy. When was the last time you were truly frightened? On a wet road and the car in front of you starts just going all over the pavement. Or you hear the doctor say, cancer, stroke, surgery. Or the phone rings in the middle of the night and it should not have rang. These men were afraid. And so they go back to Jesus. I could see them shaking his shoulder. Master, Master, we're perishing. So Jesus confronts the wind and water. He arises. I cannot find a direct connection, Brother Faber, in Greek between this and the resurrection. But I can hear shadows of it. He arises. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves. And all is calm. When I read this passage a while ago, I heard someone say, when I got to this point, they said, amen. Don't you wish to hear that sometimes? Peace, be still. We want to hear the word of God, not just printed, but spoken into our lives and all become peace. And then he rebukes his disciples. Where? is your faith. Can you see him? Can you see him go from sleep to full wakefulness? He stands in the boat. The wind is whipping his cloak and his hair. And then in great power, he commands, be still. Hollywood has ruined us. We expect swelling music and lighting effects and maybe, I don't know, a spark come out from his finger. But like God created through his spoken word, God said, let there be light. Jesus says, be quiet. And it was. And then he rebukes his disciples. Where is your faith? Still in that, with that aura of power, he turns from rebu rebuking creation to rebuking his closest friends. And he says, where is your power? Where is your faith? Excuse me. No wonder they were frightened. They feared the storm. But they have learned that there is one who is more powerful than the raging sea. They feared the master. Amen. And they marveled. This is completely outside their experience. 
they have seen a lot. They have seen marvels that had not been seen since the time of the prophets, at least. They've even seen, well, they have seen God do things that no one else could do. But this, this is outside their experience. Who can this be? Who can this be? Which brings us back to Jesus' question. Where is your faith? That brings us to the next passage. To Luke chapter 7, verse 19. And if you'd do me the honor of turning there, I would appreciate it. Before we read this text in Luke chapter 7, I want to give a little bit of context of what happens. Context is so important in a passage. John the Baptist is in jail. He's in a dungeon in the chapter we're about to read from. He had called out the sins of Herod Antipas. Now, there are so many Herods in the New Testament. I honestly, after 26, 36, almost 40 years of preaching, I cannot keep them straight, okay? This is the more powerful of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. And uh, Herod Antipas fell in love with Herodias, who unfortunately happened to be the wife of his brother. He was traveling through uh, the town where his brother Herod Philip lived. He stayed at the palace and he fell in love with Herodias. So he divorced his wife. Here we go. Facilis. By the way, in the end, that was Antipas's downfall that resulted in his exile. He divorced his wife, and he married his new lover. And John said publicly, apparently repeatedly, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Leviticus makes that perfectly clear. You can't marry your brother's wife, okay? Never mind the divorce business. You can't marry your brother's wife. And so... Antipas threw him in prison. He was the absolute tyrant, despot, ruler. And John will not leave alive. Do you remember that horrible story? How Antipas' birthday came around and he threw this party for all of his nobles and the wealthy people in, in his area and it was a, a drunken orgy and, and Antipas asked Herodias's daughter from a previous marriage to come and dance apparently her name was Salome and her dance so inflamed the passions of Antipas by the way I'm surprised he just didn't divorce Herodias her mom and marry this girl 
He said, I will give you anything you ask, up to half of my kingdom. She went back to mom. Herodias, who felt somewhat insulted by what John the Baptist had said about her marriage. And when Salome came back, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And she got it. In the setting of our story today, John is still in jail. And the text tells us in chapter 7 that Jesus had just literally raised the dead. It, <laughs> such a remarkable miracle. The, the widow's son in the village of Nain. Jesus had, in the middle of the funeral, came across this young man and basically took him out of the coffin. And the disciples of John the Baptist report this to their rabbi. And the Baptist is perplexed. Why am I in prison? And a dead man has just been set free. Do I understand? Have I misunderstood who Jesus is? So he sends two disciples to question Jesus. By the way, in John's gospel in particular, there's often repetition. And when there's repetition, it's for emphasis. It's to emphasize what's being said. So here's our text. I hope you'll follow along in Luke chapter 7, verse 17. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. That's the raising from the dead of the widow's son in the village of Nain. Then the disciples of John reported to him, him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And that very hour, he, Jesus, cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and most importantly, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Prophecy out of Isaiah. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What do we see about the faith of the Baptist? Well, he's troubled. Are you the coming one? Jesus lets his actions speak. He doesn't address John's disciples and their questions right away. He just goes about the business of being the Messiah. And then he answers John. They see the miracles. Jesus says, blessed the poor, the poor have had the gospel preached to them. And John 
who I believe was Jesus' cousin. John, blessed is he who doesn't stumble because of me. This Bible passage came about two days after the one that gave me so much trouble. And the Holy Spirit began to link these two together in my heart. Both episodes are filled with doubt. The disciples, Master, we're perishing. The Baptist, are you the coming one? Or do we wait for someone else? Both focus on the identity of Jesus. Disciples, who is this? The Baptist, doubting, perhaps offended because of Jesus. Now, mind you, at this point in the unfolding of the gospel story of who Jesus is, no one got who he was, okay? Everyone was confused. He, he just did not, he wasn't the kind of Messiah Israel expected to see. They wanted someone to kick the Romans out. They wanted someone to reestablish the kingdom of, of Israel and have a, 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 a heir of David on the throne. They did not expect the suffering servant. They weren't alone. But I do see doubt in this passage. Here's where you could open your bulletin if you wanted to. Here's where you could get a number two pencil or a pen. There won't be a test at the end. I'm not going to grade. But here's the answers to the fill in the blanks if you're so interested. Life applications. The believer's life is good. Amen. It's good to be a, a Christian. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. But life on earth can be hard. The fallen world bites us. Storms. Things outside our control. Car wrecks tragedies, illnesses. Evil people oppress us like Herod Antipas, mean bosses, abusive parents or spouses, or bullies at school and at work. And quite frankly, sometimes we just make bad choices. We decide to do bad things and we suffer the consequences. I believe most believers have some seasons of doubt. There may be exceptions. There may be seasoned Christians who are senior adults who've never had any doubts. I think they would be the exception to the rule. Not constant doubts, but seasons. 
Why hasn't God answered my prayers? Why doesn't he fix this? How can a loving God permit this to happen? So is, is this the new hallmark of the Christian life? Is this where we should camp out the world of doubt? Should we embrace this as being the, the status quo of how we should live each and every day? Paul says, be steadfast in faith. It is not, our, not God's intention for us to live in doubt. <laughs> but sometimes... We're just not steadfast. Sometimes we're just rocked by the storm. And I think faith is like holiness. You know, the Bible says over and over again, Be ye holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. It's something we strive for. But sometimes imperfectly. So I bet you could quote this verse from Ephesians. For by grace are ye saved through the very basis of our relationship with God through Jesus is faith. Which brings us back to Jesus' question. Where is your faith? Put your faith in the one in the boat. Put your faith in the one who promised to be with us in the storm. He'll get you through. No guarantees about the storm. It could be, Pastor Faber, that your series on Revelation that you're working through right now, that the trumpet will sound and Jesus will come and he will take us home and we'll skip all the rest of life's tribulations. But if that does not happen, there is a cemetery somewhere with the tombstones got your name on it in your future. I'm sorry. Sooner or later, something's going to get you. Right? right. Yeah. It's going to happen. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, of the, you know, the, the obituary written about this old man. It says, Granddad died peacefully in his sleep. But the four people in the car he, were, he was driving died in abject terror. Sooner or later, something's going to get you. No guarantees about the storm. But our faith is bigger than our circumstances. Amen. If I were to boil it down to its essentials, what I hope you would take away from this passage, these two scriptures, it's this. You have a Savior. You have a Savior, 
and that is more than fire insurance. We don't just trust Jesus that he'll take us to heaven when we die, though certainly that's, that's why we've put our faith in him. But he is more than simply the one who's going to take us to heaven. He is our constant presence in time of need. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, you have a Savior. And he is in the boat with you. So, I'm not sure where you are in uh, your pilgrimage this morning. This may simply be another great day to come to Union Grove Baptist and be a part of the worship service. But you could have come with heavy burdens. You could have come in the middle of a storm, dealing with situations in your family, <coughs> at work, with your health, things that I can't imagine. And this might be a time for you to reassess and think, where is my faith? Can I roll some of this burden on the one in the boat with me who promised to always be with me? Or it could be that you came to church today and you're not in the boat. You haven't put, made that crucial decision out of all of the doubts of all of the reasons why you have never put your faith in Jesus, you may be at the place where you'd have to say sincerely and honestly, I've, I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I've never put my faith in Him. I've, I've been riding the fence. I've been, I've been weighing things out. I just haven't. Then this would be your opportunity. To say, Jesus, would you let me be your disciple, your follower? I confess that I come to you as a person who has messed up, sinned, and I need your forgiveness, and I want to make you boss. As your pastor said earlier, God has a purpose for you being here today, and I hope and pray he will make that 